Um, over the past couple of years, I've um, interviewed a good many people for jobs here at Fullwood Church, uh, trainees, uh, associate vicar, pastoral worker, church planter, youth worker, music coordinator, international worker. There's been a lot of recruiting going on in the past couple of years. Through it all, though, it's been wonderful to see the Lord answer our prayers and to bring across our path men and women of exceptional quality and real commitment to Christ. That was what you told me to write, wasn't it, Andrew? Um, The Lord has provided us really seriously with fine Christian people. It's been a thoroughly rewarding experience. But I I mention it today because through, uh, through it all, there's been one recurring theme through all the interviews. I ask everyone who wants to join the staff, regardless of the position that they're applying for, I ask everyone to tell me about their pattern of Bible reading and prayer. And again and again, interviewees have told me how they struggle to say their prayers. People in their early 20s applying for trainee positions have lacked self-control in the discipline of prayer. Those with young families have found their prayer time routine disrupted by the demands of family life. And almost all I interviewed felt they ought to be praying more. A couple of Sundays ago, a few of us were talking at the end of the service at the back of the church there about the struggles in our own prayer times about how it so easily gets squeezed out. One person expressed it particularly well as she said, I find it so easy to pick up the newspaper, but to make time to read the Bible and pray. It seems to me, you see, that when it comes to prayer, British evangelicalism is at a very low ebb. There are many fantastic signs of life in the evangelical church in Britain, but prayer is not one of them. Years ago, the church prayer meeting would have been considered the engine room of the church the unmissable meeting for the church to demonstrate her dependence upon the Lord and to cry out to him to work among them. Now the church prayer meeting, if there is one at all, is for many like a sunroof on a new car. It's an optional extra. Just the other week, a friend of mine was, uh, who pastors a church of about 150 people was telling me that just 12 people attend their monthly prayer meeting. That is less than 10% of the congregation turning out to pray. That uh, prompted me to look back through the parish profile that was written here uh, at uh, Christchurch Forward when you were looking to appoint a new vicar. The profile reported that 80 to 120 people attend a monthly church family prayer meeting. That also is only about 10% of the congregation if you take the three congregations together. So in applying for the position, I was asked to respond to the parish profile And I wrote these words. I would want to encourage the church family to make this meeting a priority and to see it grow to represent a larger percentage of the church. Now look, the point is this. Push most evangelicals and they would say that prayer is important. But in practice, whether it be in our private devotions or our corporate prayer, there's a significant discrepancy between what we say we believe and how we actually act when it comes to prayer. We pray little... And frankly, when we do pray, it's not very impressive. Our corporate prayers are often woeful in content, not biblical in direction or substance. Listen to these uh, telling remarks from Don Carson in the preface to his excellent work, A Call to Spiritual Reformation. He says, What is both surprising and depressing is the sheer prayerlessness that characterises so much of the Western Church. It is surprising because it's out of step with the Bible that portrays what Christian living should be. 
It is depressing because it frequently coexists with abounding Christian activity that somehow seems hollow, frivolous and superficial. Scarcely less disturbing is the enthusiastic praying in some circles that overflows with emotional release but is utterly uncontrolled by any thoughtful reflection on the prayers of Scripture. Now do you hear what Carson is saying? He says generally there's a lack of prayer but even where there is prayer it is often theologically thin. Friends, where is our delight in praying? Where is the sense of wrestling with God and doing business with him on our knees? Where is this interceding with unction for others? How much of our praying is really formulaic, liberally larded with the clichés which remind us rather uncomfortably of the hypocrites that Jesus condemned? Is it not true that by and large we are better at organising than agonising? better at administering than interceding, better at fellowship than fasting, better at theological articulation than at spiritual adoration, better, may I say, at preaching than at praying. Now it's that prayerlessness that is the backdrop behind the series we kick off today. Over seven Sunday mornings here at Forward, we'll be looking at at the Lord's Prayer so that we can learn how to pray. And in the hope that in understanding the Lord's Prayer, we would begin to reform our own prayer lives for our good and for God's glory. But before we go any further, let me stop for a moment and flag up one huge danger. Already, my guess is, this talk of prayer and our failure in it would have left a number of us feeling quite guilty. Certainly as I was preparing, that was how I began to feel. Let me say from the outset, this is not to be a guilt trip. I guess most of us feel we ought to pray more. I certainly do. But guilt is not going to deal with that problem. Sure, feeling guilty will spur on the tender-hearted for a few days or weeks or, or maybe even months, but guilt is never to be the motivation for the Christian life. We should be motivated by grace, overwhelmed by the amazing love of the Lord Jesus, thrilled to be forgiven, to be called a child of God. And when it comes to prayer, we should be motivated by simply wanting to talk to God as a lover wants constantly to be in the presence of their beloved. So no, this is not a guilt trip, but it is an attempt to go back to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray so that we can learn to pray, be motivated to pray and begin to pray in a more rounded and faithful way. Well, let me uh, turn us to prayer now before we turn to the Bible. And um, I'm going to use uh, a prayer from this, the Valley of Vision. I've been very aware in my own preparation for this um, how thin my own praying is and how weak it is. And so rather than try and uh, pray a decent prayer, I've borrowed one. Let's pray now. O God of the open ear, teach me to live by prayer as well as by providence. Give me a heart frameable to thy will so that I might live in prayer and honour thee, being kept from evil, known and unknown. Let me know that the work of prayer is to bring my will to thine and that without this it is folly to pray. Help me not only to desire small things but with holy boldness to desire great things. Great things for thy people and for myself that they and I might live to show thy glory. Teach me that it is wisdom for me to pray for all I have, out of love, willingly, not of necessity, 
that I may come to thee at any time to lay open my needs acceptably to thee. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, having prayed, turn with me to Luke chapter 11, if you will, and verse 1, page 1042 in the Bible. Page 1042, Luke chapter 11. And as we look at verse 1, immediately you'll see why this we've turned to the Lord's Prayer for this series. Uh, Luke chapter 11, verse 1, page 1042. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples to pray. It's simple, isn't it? Jesus taught this prayer in response to the disciples' request, teach us to pray. If you're a new Christian and you're thinking, I don't know how to pray, well, that's very normal. We have to learn to pray. We have to be taught to pray. But before we look at the content of the prayer, um, I want you to note three things, three things that I've uh, jotted down uh, on the, um, on the uh, outline. Note, uh, firstly, what Jesus does not say here. See, on being asked to teach his disciples to pray, Jesus doesn't tell them the mechanics of prayer. He doesn't give them a, a, a list of techniques. He doesn't tell them about posture or place. He doesn't uh, tell them about where they should pray or how they should sit or whether they should close their eyes or talk out loud or, or have a prayer diary. He doesn't go through any of that. Now, don't misunderstand me. Thinking through those things can be extremely helpful. Finding a time and a place where you won't be interrupted will facilitate your praying. And I guess I'm particularly thinking of young mums who find it very difficult to find any space at all to pray. Praying in a position, in a posture, that is not only comfortable but also appropriate, appropriately reminds us that we're in the presence of Almighty God, that's a valuable thing to think through, isn't it? Having a prayer diary can hugely enhance your praying so that you're not just sort of sitting there trying to remember, but you've actually worked out what you're going to pray for. Those things are valuable, worth considering. But here's the point. You can have all those things in place and still not be praying faithfully or or praying properly. So Jesus doesn't give us a list of techniques because he knows that if he does, we'd, we'd probably follow those and still not be praying. No, when asked to teach his disciples to pray, he taught them what to pray. So, first thing, by way of introduction, what Jesus does not say. Second, uh, what Jesus does say about prayer. Look at verse 2. The disciples asked uh, to be taught to pray. Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say. Very important. He tells them what to say. So simple, but it's so important because it's so misunderstood. There's so much rubbish written about prayer in popular Christian paperbacks today. Whole chapters, whole books even, written to tell you that prayer is about listening to God. Instructing you to sit in silence or to go in the countryside and be at one with nature. Read it and it may sound persuasive and even spiritual, but you will be hard pressed to find that sort of teaching in the Bible. See it again from Jesus. Verse 1, the disciples asked him, teach us to pray, and he said, when you pray, say. Not when you pray, listen. Not when you pray, empty your mind. But when you pray, say. Prayer is talking, talking to the Father. What Jesus doesn't say, what Jesus does say about prayer. And third, by way of introduction, note why Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer. We've already seen it here from Luke 11, that he teaches the Lord's Prayer in response to the disciples saying, teach us to pray. But will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 6 and note the context, page 970. 
Now I found this very, very interesting when I started to think this through in these last couple of weeks. Page 970, Matthew 6. And here is the the other time that the the Lord's Prayer is recorded for us in the Bible. I want you to note the context in which Jesus teaches it. In Luke 11, it's because the disciples said, teach us to pray. But look at the context here in Matthew 6. In verse 5, he's warning against hypocrisy. In verse 7, he's cautioning, cautioning against meaningless babble and mindless repetition in prayer. And so do you see why this is so striking? No Christian prayer has been repeated more than the Lord's Prayer and very often it is done without understanding and very, very often in mindless familiarity. Kent Hughes remarks, each Sunday morning in countless churches more people say the Lord's Prayer than pray it. If we're honest, how many of us have fallen into the trap of of simply saying the Lord's Prayer without engaging our brain first? I know I have on many occasions, many occasions. Now look, for those of us who've been around church things for many years, and I guess particularly if we've been around Anglican church things, and we've been used to praying the Lord's Prayer regularly in the pattern of the church service, this may be hard to hear, but the Lord's Prayer was not given to us simply to repeat every week. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, Jesus does not say, this is what you should pray, but notice, this is how you should pray. Simply repeating the Lord's Prayer at every church service is not why the Lord's Prayer was given to us. And if we do, I would suggest that every one of us will fall into the danger of praying like the pagans, mindlessly repeating words without thinking about it. Well, so much for the context. What about the content? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We know it so well. Our Father in heaven. And uh, over the page on the handout, if you're still following. Father in heaven. Uh, It's not just simply a neat start. But listen, these words, Father in heaven, form the foundation of prayer itself. Not just the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. This is the very foundation of prayer itself. First then, our Father. It is a remarkable thing. I guess many of us are very familiar with it, but uh, don't be, for that reason, less amazed by it. Jesus teaches his disciples that Christians can call God Father. We have the sort of intimate relationship with Almighty God. We can call the Creator and Sustainer of all things Father. Friends, wonder at the astonishing privilege that we have as Christians. I printed on the top of the handout a remarkable picture of President J.F. Kennedy working at his desk in the Oval Office while his son John plays beneath it. Now I think it's safe to say that no other little boy in the world could have got anywhere near that desk but John could walk straight in and play. Why? Because of his relationship with the President. He would have been able to say to anybody who questioned his presence, he may be your president, but he's my daddy. He had that level of access and intimacy that would be impossible for anyone else. See, it was no small thing for John to be able to play at his father's desk. And it is no small thing for a Christian to be able to call God Father and to come into his presence in prayer. See, Jesus teaches his disciples here to call the Sovereign Lord Father. The word, as many of you know, is Abba. 
It's an Aramaic word used by children to address their father. It's not quite as familiar as daddy, but it's not a formal father either. Don Carson suggests it's like the word papa that French-speaking Canadians use when they speak to their father. It has a respect about it, but it is still full of warmth and intimate relationship. And Jesus begins like this because this word speaks of, as I've written on the handout, redemption and relationship. Indeed, redemption that leads to relationship. Firstly, redemption. See, calling God Abba, Father, should remind us of the Gospel. Just take a step back a moment. I hope we all realise that it is impossible for any human being to wander into the presence of God because we're sinful. Uh, Caroline and I have just been uh, skiing with with the children. Um, We drove all the way to the French Alps. It was a long car journey. And uh, on long car journeys with uh, seven-year-old twins and little boys just turned five, you need to find lots of things to do. And so we did. And uh, we listened to CDs over and over again. And um, here's one that we listened to. Uh, the King, the Snake and the Promise. It's a good, good CD, children's uh, songs. And it's been whirring around in my mind as we listen to this. God is a Holy God is one of the songs. And while I was preparing... Uh, yesterday, just finishing off my preparation, I couldn't get this song out of my head. Then I realised it was quite good that I couldn't. Do you know the first two lines of this? It goes like this. God is a holy God. We can't be friends because of our sin. Simple, isn't it? God is a holy God. We can't be friends because of our sin. My sinfulness disqualifies me from God's presence. The Jewish temple, indeed, was designed to make that point. Remember, right at the heart of the temple was the Holy of Holies, the room where the Ark of the Covenant was kept, where God was symbolically present. Do you remember the huge curtain outside the Holy of Holies, acting as a barrier, as a huge no-entry sign? You can't come into the the presence of God. Indeed, it was almost protecting us as well. If you come into the presence of God, you will be obliterated. You can't do that. It was saying to all who looked at it, you simply cannot come into God's presence. God is a holy God. We can't be friends because of our sin. Listen to the rest of the lyrics. Jesus died to wash us clean. When we put our trust in him, God opens his arms and welcomes us in. That's what we're going to be remembering as we take bread and wine in in just a moment. At the very moment that Jesus died on a cross outside Jerusalem, at that very moment, the temple curtain was torn in two. Jesus' death and only Jesus' death gives me access into the presence of God. There is no no other way to the almighty sovereign creator of the universe. So you see here, as Jesus teaches the disciples to pray, he tells them not only that they can come into the presence of almighty God, but that they can call him Father, Abba, Papa. Because through Jesus' death, do you remember, I am adopted into his family. This is why this is all about redemption and and reconciliation and relationship. I'm adopted into his family. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 8, the last of our Bible references uh, this morning. Page 1134, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. Romans 8, verse 14, the very last line on page 1134. See what Paul writes? Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. See, when we become Christians, when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us, so God the Holy Spirit teaches us to call God Father. That is only possible through the death of Jesus Christ. And this is the important theological point. If you want to put your brain in gear, now's the time to do it. Jesus is the only acceptable Son of God. So it is through faith in him when I'm in Christ as my Saviour and Lord, then I am given the same status that he has. All believers then, if we are in Christ, then we're a believer, and all believers then are sons of the Father. That's verse 14. We are sons, not as a matter of our gender, but as a matter of our being in union with the Son. Our sonship then is not a gender issue, it's a status issue. And it is only because we are sons of God that we can come into the presence of God and call him Father. Just as J.F. Kennedy's son, John, could walk into the Oval Office and talk to his father only because he was his son. Now that's the point of this prayer beginning as it does. It should remind us of the gospel of reconciliation Uh, The gospel of redemption. And in that word father then is the motivation for prayer. The very word father reminds me of Jesus' sacrificial death and my adoption as a child of God. And that should thrill me that I would want to pray because I can, because of the gospel. And that naturally leads on to relationship because I am redeemed in order to be in a relationship with God. Uh, Someone asked me recently, how long should I pray for? I didn't answer the question. The question itself is wrong, do you see? To ask how long should I pray is like me asking for how long should I speak to my wife. The question itself reveals a significant problem. But that actually is how many of us think about prayer and that's because we think wrongly about God. Uh, The Christianity Explored course Uh, begins by asking everyone, if you could ask God one question and you knew he would answer it, what would it be? And one of the questions that regularly comes up during the course is this, who is God and what's he like? Now, Now I want you to imagine that one of your friends asks you that question, who is God and what is he like? Now what would be the first thing that you would... uh, that you would say to them? What would be your, your knee-jerk reaction? Who is God and what's he like? What's the thing that comes into your mind? Is your first thought to say he's like a wonderful, loving father? When you get down on your knees to pray, when you open your Bibles each day, are you conscious that you are coming before your heavenly papa? Or do you suspect that God is someone who's out to get you, to make life hard for you? See, if that's how you think, you won't pray much, will you? But I suspect that is how many of us do think. A Christian said to me some years ago, everything's going well for us at the moment, we're just waiting for something to go wrong. Do you feel like that? It is a warped view of God, isn't it? The God, the celestial sadist, looking down from heaven, looking out for people who are enjoying life just so they can spoil our fun. 
I was talking to somebody recently, not from this church, someone who's, who's going through a hard time in their life, and they said to me, I think God's punishing me. And I said, it doesn't work like that. God isn't like that. And they said, I know it's not supposed to work like that, but that's what I think is happening. That's how it feels. Now do you see, if you think that way about God, it will change the way you pray. You'll certainly never pray the line in the Lord's Prayer, your will be done. That is far too scary and too risky a prayer to pray unless you're sure that God is your Father and he wants the best for you. I'm not going to ask for his will to be done in my life if I don't think he cares for me. What if you've come across this book by Floyd McClung? It's been around years. The Father Heart of God. I I loved reading it some years ago, uh, particularly the first half of the book. Uh, Listen to why he wrote it. He says this. I've written this book because most people do not know God as a loving father. They do not know him as someone to love and trust, someone who's worthy of their absolute loyalty and commitment. Uh, Listen to what uh, Kent Hughes says to those who uh, haven't yet understood God as father. Let me ask you a personal question. Do you have a spirit of adoption? Do we sense that God is our Father? Do we think of him and address him as our dear Father? If we cannot answer in the affirmative, it may be because he is not our spiritual Father and therefore we need to heed the words of Scripture and receive him. And listen to these words by uh, Jim Packer in, in Knowing God. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity... Find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God, writes Packer. Look, I love being a dad. It's hard work. Sometimes the little monkeys drive me up the wall. Uh, But on the whole, most of the time, I love them to bits and I love spending time with them. I love it when they come home from school and they tell me all about the things they've been doing all day. You wouldn't find it interesting at all. They tell me about the most mundane and ordinary things. They rabbit on about everything and nothing the things they've learned at school, the insignificant things they did in the playground, how excited they are about the Easter eggs that Grandma and Grandad sent them, you probably wouldn't be interested in it at all. But I am. I love hearing about it because I'm their daddy and I love them. Do you know God like that? As father, as papa? And is that how you see prayer? Talking to your Heavenly Father telling him about everything and nothing. Well, that will need to be controlled and we'll see a bit later on the things we ought to be praying, but if you haven't even started there, then you've missed something. Our Father, and secondly, and very briefly, in heaven. See, our Father in heaven, it's a wonderful truth alongside the fatherhood of God. He is in heaven. That is, he is the sovereign Lord. He is in control. That's the point. Do you remember the the vision of God in heaven from the book of Revelation? In heaven, he is 
remember, seated on the throne. He is king. Now isn't that a wonderful combination? Our Father in heaven. If he were just our heavenly Father, it would be great to talk to him. But what could he do about it? See, my children can talk to me about big issues in the world and they might feel better in talking to me about it, but I can do nothing about it. If he were just our Heavenly Father, there'd be no point you or I praying your kingdom come or give us this day our daily bread because he might not be able to do it. There'd certainly be no point praying about the really huge issues in life and in the world for how could he answer that prayer? Similarly, if he were just God in heaven, the sovereign Lord in control of all things, I wouldn't dare to pray the fourth line of the Lord's prayer, your will be done. I'd have no assurances that his will was best for me. Who's to say that he wouldn't just move me around like a pawn on a chessboard? But our Father in heaven, what a fantastic and powerful combination. That should give me confidence in prayer. Indeed, it should encourage me to pray. As I pray, he can do something about it. He's in heaven. He's the sovereign, powerful Lord. And as I pray, I come to the one who loves me, for he cares for me intimately, for he is my Papa in heaven. Well, the first line then is a great foundation for prayer, a foundation for all prayer. And as we meditate on it and understand it, it should encourage us to pray more. Well, let's turn to pray now.